Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Caleb, come on up here. I'm not going to say much about Caleb other than I've had the joy and privilege of working alongside of him over the last couple years in student ministry. He's on our teaching team for students, and he has uh, the honor of getting to preach this morning for us. So, Caleb, welcome. Good to be with you all this morning. Like Chris said, uh, my name is Caleb Holmes, uh, and I, uh, if we haven't met, Hello, good to meet you. <laughs> I just see a few familiar faces, which is always good when you're doing big church, right? Uh, as, long, as old as I get, it will always be big church to me, right? Um, yeah, so like I said, my name is Caleb Holmes. Uh, I'm, uh, my wife and I, Allison, uh, if some of you all know Allison, uh, definitely my better half um, in so many different ways. Uh, not just a thing people say, but very true of me. Um, We've been members here at Redemption for about three years, uh, and it's always easy to remember how long we've been at Redemption because we said, hey, let's come be a part of what's happening here. And then two days later, we had our daughter, Charlotte, um, and I think we have a picture. Yes, so sweet. Um, So sweet, Um, except when she's not. Uh, And uh, those of you who have kids know exactly what I'm talking about. So um, we serve, obviously, like I said, uh, like Chris said, I'm in the student ministry. I had the opportunity to teach uh, last week for our retreat, and so we'll be kind of covering some of that same stuff this morning. So students, um, if you've already heard this, well, sorry, uh, but it'll be, it'll be good. Uh, you can quiz your parents. Um, and, uh, and then Allison serves in the children's ministry, so some of you, you all probably know her from, from there, or at least would recognize her face. Um, We also have one more girl on the way, Olivia, and she's due in about a month. So, uh, so if you, uh, if you see me rush out of here, or if you are thinking about us uh, over the next uh, couple of months, be praying for us because we're about to kick it up a notch in our household. So um, Lord, Lord willing. So um, our theme last week for our retreat was guess who? Anybody ever play guess who the game, the classic board game? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the uh, guess who is, is, is a relatively simple game, really, when you break it down, right? So you're just asking yes or no questions about a person's physical characteristics uh, in order to figure out who they are, right? So what their identity is. Um, and so, you know, you get down to the last person you say, oh, this is Charlie or, you know, Jessica or whatever, right? And that's how you win the game. The box says that this game is for people who are six and up, but really, if you're over the age of probably about 10 or so, um, this game is like dead easy to play because it's just a series of uh, yes or no questions and process of elimination, right? So um, I, you're free to play if you want. Um, parents, if you want to play with your kids, you'll feel real smart, um, you know, and sometimes you just need a pick-me-up in, in the day, and so that is a op- great opportunity to, to do that. Um, I played with Charlotte the other day, and, uh, and I won, and that was very encouraging to me. <laughs> so, uh, 
So, like I said, uh, this game gets really easy if you are uh, over the age of, you know, 10 or 11 or so. Um, and so that's why my sister and her family, they actually play a little bit different. So um, they ask, not by, they don't ask yes or no questions about a person's physical characteristics, but by what it looks like that person might be into or a part of or whatever, right? So um, th- they would ask questions like, does this person look like they have kids, right? Um, does this person look like they're rich? Do they look like they go to the gym a lot? Um, do they look like they go to Brahms three times a day, right? These sorts of questions in order to get down. And if you think about it, this is actually a far more accurate way of playing the game because we know that our identity, right, who we are, is not just what we look like, right? There's so much more to it than that, right? It's where we're from. It's where we go to school. It's our religion, our gender, our friends, our hobbies, where we went to school, right? How we were raised, how our parents were raised, right? All of these things go into uh, making up who we are, right? And uh, what, I would, uh, what I would contend, and, and not just me, but people far smarter than me, uh, is that we, both as individuals and as a, as a society writ large, have an identity crisis. We don't really know who we are day in and day out. See, whether we know it or not, we spend every minute of almost every day um, in identity messaging, right? We're just a goldfish just swimming in this vast ocean of identity messaging. And certainly there are the obvious identity crises of gender and sexuality that we hear about, but I think there are far more subtle, more nuanced identity issues, and maybe even more dangerous identity issues that we face all day and every day. Because again, whether it's TV or movies or advertising or social media or cable news or our folks at work or even just our own deceptive hearts, we're constantly being told who or what we should be. And I actually brought an example of this this morning uh, to, to, to show you guys from advertising. Okay, first of all, let me say, uh, Chris Clark really wanted me to play this this morning, okay? So if you have any concerns or questions, please email chrisclark at redemptionchurch.com or something, whatever it is, I don't know. You can find it on the website, okay? Second of all, what is going on in that commercial? Like, what is happening? It's just like, you see first, you know, Johnny Depp just looking sullenly at the, at the, at the, uh, at the, uh, at the camera, and then he's playing guitar. What are those guitar amps plugged into? Like, they're in the middle of the desert. There's no cables running anywhere except to the amps, and also, so that must mean they're battery or solar-powered or something, right? I also have questions whether Johnny Depp can actually play guitar, because it looks like he's shredding. I think that's the term. I'm not a musician. But it looks like he's really good at guitar, okay? What's happening there? Um, why are they in a desert? Like, what, why, why are they in a desert? That makes no sense. Because I know that wolves of that size are not native to the desert, okay? Like, I've seen, and I, I have a three-year-old, I've seen enough uh, Crap Brothers, right? Ventures with Crap Brothers to know 
that, uh, that tem- those are timber wolves and they do not belong in the desert, okay? They belong somewhere like in Minnesota or something like that, right? Right? Oh, yeah, and does this stuff smell good? Like, does it, like, we don't even know if it smells good, right? We, there's no mention of, like, here are the notes of the fragrance, or here's, you know, what it smells like, or we enjoy this or that, right? It's just like, hey, look how cool this is, right? Look how cool this is. And I'll be honest with you, uh, this commercial typically plays uh, during football games. I've, at least that's where I saw it. And uh, when I saw it the first time, I was like, I have to have that. <laughs> I have to have that, Right? I have to have that. I need to be cool like that is, right? This is the identity messaging. I have no business buying this stuff, right? I'm about to have two kids under the age of four in my house. I have no, no need for cologne, okay? But here I am, and I'm just like, I, I need this stuff, right? I have to have this because I need to be cool like Johnny Depp is cool. That's an identity message, right? And this is a silly thing, right? And it's absurd, and it's easy to see when it's this absurd, And it's fun to laugh at. But if we're honest with ourselves, the age-old tropes of of, uh, jock and nerd, of popular and unpopular, of pretty and not pretty, and so many more, those things don't stop when we leave the halls of our high school, do they? Right? In fact, in some ways, they become worse because now you you can make money. And you can really clearly separate yourself from other people. You can afford cologne that's $60 an ounce. Right? I know that because I looked it up. Because like I said... I really needed it. We are constantly working to figure out who we are, and we just can't seem to get there, though, right? And we feel this in, in, our, in our hearts and in our minds and in our chest. We are just so exhausted all the time. And at least, in part, it's because we're trying to constantly define ourselves, right, and who we are. It's what one writer calls the unbearable responsibility of self-belonging. And when not addressed, this identity crisis inevitably leads to a host of bad habits, of hurts, of hang-ups, and even worse, right, both in our lives and in the lives of those people around us. And so this is the problem that we all have. The question is, what are we to do about it? Well, thankfully, in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul kind of walks us through this and how he handles this problem in his life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, and as you turn there, um, let's talk a little bit about kind of what's happening in, in the book. So why does Paul write the book of Galatians and all of that? And so Paul writes a pretty specific, pretty pointed letter to the Galatians because uh, some of them are trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? So here in Galatia, there are essentially two groups of Christians, people who are Gentiles, people who uh, grew up following the law of Moses, excuse me, who didn't grow up following the law of Moses, Right? They instead have their own rules, their own customs from wherever they, whatever, from wherever they were, right? Whatever their background was. So they were Greek or Roman or Scythian or barbarian or whatever, right? And then you also had the Jews. So these are people who grew up going to synagogue, right? People who followed the law of Moses and believed in the God of the Old Testament, right? They believed that the rules that he had set forth for following God and being one of his people. And so a dichotomy is kind of grows up between the two. And certainly there are people who fall all along the spectrum, but these are kind of the two big groups of people in the church of Galatia. And so a divide is going to grow up among them because, again, some folks want to follow the teachings of Jesus and the law, right? So they've grown up in their own traditions, doing their own thing. They've grown up, again, going to synagogue, following the laws of Moses. And so they want to follow Jesus 
and the law. And those two things, as Paul says, are just simply incompatible with one another. See, the law only brings death. That was the whole point of it, at least in some ways, because it was a measuring stick of holiness upon which we would always, always, always fall short. With over 600 rules, there was no way we could keep all of it. But when Jesus comes, he fulfills the law and does what we can't do. And so Paul's pretty upset with the Galatians because he's giving them a message of grace, but all they want to do is follow the law, right? And so, again, like a lot of the other letters where Paul is really happy with them, he is, shall we say, miffed and peeved with the Galatians because they're not following the gospel that he left them, right? We've seen of the past few weeks in Philippians where he's just so happy to speak to the Philippians. He's so happy he loves them. He's been talking to them. And when you read the first chapter of Galatians, he is not, <laughs> is not the same sort of language that Paul gives the Philippians. And so we should add that these people not only are following the gospel, or they're not following the gospel that Paul left them, but they're impressing and even requiring others to follow the Old Testament law as well, right? So it's one thing to just not follow something yourself. It's another thing to drag people out, other people along with you, right? And so that's what they're doing. And so, in short, they want others to have the same identity that they do. So, here in Galatians chapter 2, he's going to tell a story to illustrate this point. And it involves uh, Peter and Paul. So, Peter, yes, that Peter, the guy who is always sticking his foot in his mouth, right? The guy who's cutting off priests' ears and all of these sorts of things, right? That Peter, the disciple of Jesus, it involves him. So, uh, here's kind of the background of, of this um, because Peter or Paul is going to have some pretty strong language for, uh, for Peter, and it's important to know why he feels this way. So Paul is going to the recount to the Galatians earlier in chapters one and two how his ministry came to be. How although he had although he had grown up in a uh, in a law following household, right? He had been a Jew. Uh, everything changed when he became a Christian, and so from there he goes on to talk about how he and Peter um, grew up. <clears throat> excuse me, how they became friends and uh, how they agreed that they both would have their own sort of separate ministries, how they would, uh, uh, Peter was free to minister to the Jews and that was his, uh, that was his thing. That was what he was going to do with his time. And Paul was going to minister to the Gentiles, right? And they both agreed that this is okay. That there's no problem with that, right? That the shoes that they could have ob- obviously switched their roles and what they were doing, but this is what they felt like God had called them to do. And so this is what they were going to do. And they're like, yeah, this is great. Everything's fine, right? Uh, Jews and Gentiles both need the Lord, and so everything is good, right, and dandy until we come to verse 11. Into <laughs> uh, what we are, or at least we, last week we called affectionately the dinner party, okay? Uh, so, verse 11. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Cephas is just one of Peter's uh, other names, right? So, Uh, one of his nicknames. Cephas came to Antioch. I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. Okay, well, not really sure what Paul's personality type is, but it's it's apparently whichever one is most okay with conflict. Because here he is, he's just like, I opposed him to his face. Why did you do that, Paul? Well, verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here they are eating, and it's a little unclear as to what's going on. 
um, and why they're eating, or is this just a regular meal, or is this something, you know, a Passover meal, or something else that's going on, is this something more important than that? But they're eating, right? That's all we really need to know. And uh, they're eating together, and Peter is there, and he's eating with the Gentiles. And some members of what Paul calls the circumcision party, aka people who think that Jews and Gentiles should be separated, right? People who are following the law of Moses, who are trying to have their cake and eat it to follow Jesus and the law, these people show up. They crash the party. And uh, while it's not recorded, it's pretty easy to imagine what their questions are like to Peter, right? Hey, Peter, why are you eating with these Gentiles? These people are unclean. What are you doing with, what are you doing here? What are you doing with these people? Are you not Jewish? You're not a Gentile. Your identity is as a Jew. You need to be doing Jewish things. Peter, come on, come sit with us. And it's easy to imagine these questions because we get questions like that all the time, don't we? Some of them aren't as, as, uh, as in your face as the circumcision party probably was. They're much more subtle than that, right? What gym did you say you were a part of? Uh, what, school do, what school do your kids go to? Your daughter is a part of how many activities? You only read three hours a day to your toddler. <laughs> what kind of car do you drive? Uh, what did you say you do for a living? Oh, you don't manage anyone at work. You're just an individual contributor. And Peter, either because he doesn't know what to do, right? He's just so caught off guard by these people. Or because he just wants to keep the peace, he separates himself. It tells us that he draws back. And this seems absurd to us, right? Because Peter should know better, right? He should. He does know better. But we do the same thing when we're questioned about our identity too, right? When we're pressed about our identity, we often cave to whatever it is that people are telling us. Like Peter, we just go along with the crowd accepting whatever is easiest. Some of us, though, we have more in common with the circumcision party than we would care to admit, right? Again, whether we know this or not. We have much more in common with them than we would like to admit. We're always telling people what to do and how to do it. We tell people how to dress or act or be. We let our friends know that they should raise their kids this way or that way. <laughs> right? To vote or not vote for certain people. To watch or not watch various shows and movies. Right? The list goes on and on and on forever Right? about these things. And they're both in the positive and in the negative. You need to do this. You don't need to do that. Right? But whatever it is, we are placing restrictions on people all the time, telling them that in order to be good Christians, they have to do this, that, or the other. Inside the circumcision party, there's not a culture of grace. There's only a culture of law. And Jesus comes and he tells us that he has come to fulfill the law, giving us a culture of grace. The truth is probably that we both do, right? We, we do both, right? <laughs> that constantly, all the time, we are having our identity pressed onto us while pressing our identity onto other people, right? And it's this horribly vicious circle that we, again, just can't seem to get out of all the time. It's exhausting. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? <laughs> Let's read that again because there's a lot happening there. Uh, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? First of all, let me say that we all need friends like Paul in our lives. 
friends who will call us on our inconsistencies, right? Who will say, mm, what you're doing doesn't make sense and add up. And I actually think it's dangerous, right? Second of all, right? Paul is annoyed with Peter, okay? Why is he annoyed with him? Well, because he knows that every other day of the week that Peter is, is not acting like a, uh, he's not acting like a Jew. He's acting like a Gentile, right? He's living like a Gentile. He's doing Gentile things, right? So uh, he is uh, working on the Sabbath. He's not going to synagogue. He is eating bacon, right? Or whatever other sort of dietary restrictions are free to him now because he's living like a Gentile. And so here Peter is expecting these Gentiles to act like a Jew when he doesn't even do that, right? He's putting undue restrictions on people. If Paul was in Oklahoma, he would tell Peter that the pot shouldn't call the kettle black, right? Don't do that. Why does Peter do this? Why does the circumcision party do this? Well, again, it's, it's not entirely recorded, but I think it's at least safe to say that in part, uh, it's because that they felt safe and secure in their identity as law-following Jews, right? They believed that their law-following would save them. They found their identity not in what Jesus had done on the cross to fulfill the law, but in their own works, right? And they felt really safe and secure in that. Here's the question, though, for us, and for the Galatians, for that matter. Why doesn't Paul fall into this same identity trap, right? Why doesn't he fall into this same problem? Because given his background and upbringing, he should be just as, if not more, tempted to fall into this than everybody else, right? Because here's what he has to say about himself. This is how Paul describes himself in Philippians 3, okay? So sorry if we're stealing some Philippians thunder, um, but here we go. So Philippians 3, if anyone else thinks, this is Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. (laughs) Paul says, I'm perfect. (laughs) I'm perfect. Like, you can't touch this, right? (laughs) A Hebrew of Hebrews. He is blameless under the law. He follows it perfectly. So why doesn't he fall into the same trap? Because he should find his identity there too, right? Inside the law. If we look down in verse 20, he answers that question for us. He says this to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul doesn't just tell us that he has a new religion right? He doesn't just tell us that he's following Jesus now, right? Oh, like I'm following Jesus now. No, it's not that, right? Or that he's no longer going to follow the law. What he says is that he has been crucified with Christ. He identifies with Christ via the crucifixion, This is what theologians call union with Christ, that upon salvation, we join and are identified with Jesus, We read through the New Testament, and Paul and the other apostles are constantly using this language over and over again. They're saying things like, with Christ or in Christ or some other variation of it, right? This idea of union with Christ is essential to who we are as Christians. The change in Paul's life was so great, it was so dramatic, that the only way to describe it was to say that he was a new person, right? That the old version of him 
had died. He was no longer a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was with Christ. He says it this way in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what does this new life look like, right? So it's not just enough for us to say like, oh, he has a new life. What does this new life look like? Well, Paul simply tells us that it's lived by faith, right? Which honestly isn't very much for us to go on. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. But if we turn over to chapter 5, he tells us what a life of faith looks like. So uh, keep your finger there in Galatians 2, and then we can turn over to Galatians chapter 5. It's important to remember that this is one long letter, right? So Paul is writing something to the Galatians, and he has one big idea that he's trying to carry out throughout the entire letter, right? Something that he's wanting them to get and come across. And so a lot of times we can figure out some of these inconsistencies or things that we're just not quite sure about by just reading ahead a little bit, right? It's like any other story, right? If we, uh, un- we're not sure what's going on, if we just read a little bit longer, it'll make a little bit more sense. And so that's what's happening here in Galatians chapter 5. He's going to tell the Galatians what a life of faith looks like. He says this, starting in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things that there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does a life of faith look like? What does it look like to live by faith in the Son of God? What characteristics does someone who has truly found their identity in Christ have? He tells us they have love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This might as well be a character wish list, right? Who can't use a little more joy in their life? I know I could, right? I would love to find some more peace. Patience, as soon as I have time, I'll go find some, right? These are all things that we're looking for, and they are found in Christ. You'll notice, too, that these are the fruits of the Spirit, that these things, these are the things that come about in our lives when we are crucified in Christ, right? When we crucify our life to Christ. Jesus tells us that we will know a tree by its fruit, that apples don't grow on pear trees, right? And that bananas don't grow on a vine. The flesh only produces bad fruit. We see that in the early, earlier piece there in chapter 5. The, the fresh flesh only produces bad fruit, but the Spirit brings life. Okay, fine, Caleb, I get it, right? I need to do these things and not do those things. I need to crucify my flesh, right? And blah, blah, blah. Right? Same thing we hear all the time. What's important for us to know, though, is why Paul does this, right? Because just his own, if, if he's just going about this by his own self and trying to cultivate these things in his life, he's really not a whole lot better than the circumcision party, is he, right? He's just pulling himself up by a different pair of bootstraps, Right? So why does Paul do this? Notice the end of verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, we're going back to chapter 2 here. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul knew that Jesus loved him and that securing his identity with Christ would be far more fulfilling than any other possible identity because it was rooted in God's love. He knew that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Christ. That until we identify with Christ and his crucifixion, then we will continue to grasp at straws and nothing will ever satisfy us. We will uh, toil under that unbearable weight of self-belonging. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about the cross and our crucifixion. A cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's the dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it, it, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cross was not the end of Paul's life. He knew that rooting himself in God's love would be the beginning of a new and better one. And so the solution for us is the same, right? The solution for our our identity, Christ, in this modern age is not all that different than Paul's. It's not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try and make something of ourselves, but to instead recognize that Christ has called us to come and die to ourselves, to crucify our flesh with its passion and desires. And in that, we find our true selves, right? Not in some mumbo-jumbo, coming-of-age, hyper-therapeutic, cosmic way, right? But in a real and practical way, in a way that has real tangible effects on our lives. It's in our union with Jesus that we find the person that we are meant to be, right? The person who he has made us to be. Or as Jesus himself describes it, in him we find life and life abundantly. In him we find a life of love and joy and peace and oh so much more. This is why the old hymn says that in the arms of our dear Savior there are 10,000 charms. And I don't know where you are in your faith. I don't know most of you. (laughs) I don't know where you are in your faith. Maybe you've been in church since you were a kid. That's my story, right? Anytime the doors were open, mom literally had a key to the church. Right? Anytime the doors were open. Maybe I think that that is the story of a lot of you all. Maybe you've never set foot in one. Maybe you're watching online and you still haven't set foot in one. Maybe you've been coming a lot, but for whatever reason, you just aren't real sure if you should keep coming. Is this really all worth it? Whatever your story is, I know this. God loves you. You are made in his image. What theologians call the image of God, the imago Dei. That you have value and worth as your own self because he has made you that way. And in him, you will find that. Jesus tells us this about himself in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who are labor labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's an identity that I would love to have. That is an identity that I can get behind, right? Not this constant striving. That's really good news, right? This is our good news, that our striving and working and pretending can end, right? Because in Christ, we find our identity. He loves us and gave himself up for us, right? Worth, value, and beauty are determined by what someone is willing to pay for, right? And in that, he gave us, he gave his son. And that's really good news, right, for me and you. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we confess and we admit that so often we uh, want to find our identity in stuff that is just more fulfilling, or at least we think it will be, right? Stuff that uh, we can see and is tangible, things that we uh, can be known for. God, I pray that we would find our identity in you. We would crucify our flesh and our desire through the help of your spirit and that we would find our life in you. God, we thank you for your goodness to us and your love for us. In you, we find true life and true identity. We love you. Amen.